0: Tonight, we're going to be talking about Paul's time in Jerusalem, or at least beginning the, the process. And just for the sake of time, I'll just let you know, because we're going to, we've got a lot to cover tonight, a large segment. And for the sake of time, we're not going to read uh, all of the scripture that we're going to be talking about. I'll be recapping it. I encourage you to read that scripture at home um, uh, when, you, when you get a chance. Uh, but we're, we're just going to read certain selected portions to help us, just for the sake of time. Tonight, we're going to be talking about Acts 21, beginning in verse 17. We're actually going to get well into Acts chapter 22. We start off here in this story. Paul has finally arrived at Jerusalem. He's staying in the home of a man named Manasin, who was one of the original 120 believers who were in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. And he finally gets to Jerusalem, and he he meets with the, uh, with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And they, they greet him very warmly. They're excited to see him. Then after greeting these elders, Paul uh, took some time and he described to them all that God had accomplished through his ministry on, on both sides of the Aegean Sea since he last visited Jerusalem. And it's been quite some time since he had been there. And, uh, and James, uh, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, all the other elders, they began to praise God because of all that he was doing among the Gentiles. However, there was something that was causing great anxiety among the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And uh, it, it, we're, we're told in, uh, let's see, it would be in verse uh, 9. Or, excuse me, Oh, God, my vision's not very good here. Verse 20, that's what it is, verse 20. Uh, One of the things that was happening in Jerusalem, Paul, you know, we're reading about all the great revival and everything that's happening among the Gentiles, but it was really exciting because the gospel has also been spreading like wildfire in Jerusalem because we're told that there there are are many thousands of Jews who have come to faith in Christ. And that's a really exciting thing. Uh, However, the problem is, He's, they, they told Paul. They said all of these Jews that have come to faith in Christ, faith in Christ are very zealous for the law. In fact, they said, you know in, in a way they're saying they're a lot like what you were, Paul. Where you remember how Paul was so zealous for the law that he was persecuting the church. But well, now these are Christians, and and uh, it's not it's not likely that you know because they're Christians they're not depending on the law to save them, but their faith in Christ has made them that much more passionate about the law, and. There are probably Judaizers that are still among them. I certainly were, because if they were in other places around the world, they would be in Jerusalem and, and, uh, and teaching about how important circumcision was and this sort of thing. And so because they were so passionate about it, uh, they, they told Paul, they explained to him that it had been rumored among the Jewish Christians, uh, maybe spread by enemies of Paul or whoever it might be. Uh, But it had been rumored among the Jewish Christians of Jerusalem that Paul not only refused to impose the requirements of the Jewish law on on his Gentile converts. Remember, that was why he was in Jerusalem the last time, because there were people saying that Gentiles had to be circumcised. They had to go through the process of becoming a proselyte, becoming Jewish in their faith before they could ever be saved. And Paul had that Meeting in Jerusalem, and they came to the conclusion to say, No, Gentiles don't have to be circumcised, that it's faith in Christ alone that'll save them. And so they, they heard that, but these, these people, these rumors began to take it a step further because now they were saying that he actually uh, dissuaded Jewish believers from continu- continuing to practice their ancestral customs headed, handed down from, from Moses. And they had, they had even heard incorrectly that Paul was encourages, encouraging Jewish believers uh, to give up circumcising their own sons. Now, the reality is this was nothing but slander. Uh, in fact, I mean, you can look at, at what Paul did. when, when he took Timothy on, uh, on his journey with him, the first time he, he, Timothy traveled with him, does anybody remember what he did with Timothy he had Timothy circumcised uh, because, he, 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 because Timothy was a Jew and he, and he didn't want to cause offense. And so it, it's, you know, he did that himself. And, and so there's no way that he's, he's telling these Jewish families, all right, now that you're a Christian, you don't need to circumcise your sons anymore. Well, James and the other elders of the J- Jerusalem church, they recognized these accusations were false. However, they also realized that everyone in the city, all these believers, had heard them again and again and again. Now what happens in a crowd of people in a large population when they start hearing the same rumors again and again and again? It starts taking root and people start believing it or, or they begin to wonder if there's some truth behind it. And, 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 and now, since all in Jerusalem would would surely hear that Paul had come back to town. Their question is, what should we do? So for the sake of unity and order, they they needed to find a way to reassure literally tens of thousands of believing Jews, only they didn't have the aid of mass media. How are you going to communicate? How are you going to get the message out? So basically they decided that they were going to use the the same grapevine that had spread these rumors, they said, you know what, if we can do something that's significant enough, then word will get out. It will be passed from one person to another. And so James and the elders had a suggestion that they hoped if Paul did this would squash all of these disturbing reports. And and their idea was that if he were seen publicly taking part in one of the most revered ancestral customs of the Jews that it would be realized by everybody who saw him that he was, in fact, a pious and observant Jew. So with that in mind, there were four Christians, four Christian Jews, who had taken a special oath called the Nazarite vow. Now this special oath set a Jew apart from normal life. And and while he or she was dedicated to this vow, the individual agreed to three stipulations. They, just, they, were, they were set aside to often for a specific purpose, but they said for a Nazarite vow, there were three things they had to do. Number one, they were to abstain from any product of the vine. That meant no wine, no strong drink. Uh, they couldn't eat grapes, couldn't eat raisins, no juice, anything like that. They had to, st- to completely avoid any, anything from the, from the vine. Number two, they had to avoid all contact with the dead. Now, you say to yourself, well, that's kind of weird. I mean, that's, is that really a hard thing to do? Well, except what that meant was that if they had a family member who passed away during the time of their, of their uh, Nazarite vow, they wouldn't go to the funeral because they would risk exposure and they, and they, they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't be around a, a dead body because that would defile them before they finished their vow. And the third thing was they had to allow his or her, her hair to grow uncut. And then at the end of this special season, this special vow, however long it was, it wasn't a set time, they could just declare, I'm going to be doing a Nazarite vow for 14 days, whatever it might be. Um, but uh, at the end of that, the, the, they would deliver a, a special sacrifice to the temple to, to consummate this vow. And that offering included... Uh, Listen to this. These are the things they had to bring to finish up their Nazarite vow. They had to bring one male lamb, a year old, without defect, for a burnt offering. They had to also bring one ewe lamb, one female lamb, uh, a year old, without defect, for a sin offering. They also had to bring one ram without defect for a peace offering. In addition to that, they had to bring a basket of unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil. In addition to that, they had to bring unleavened, unleavened wafers spread with oil and all of that along with the usual grain offering and the usual drink offering. And you can find all that in Numbers chapter 6. All that information is there. So during the ceremony then, they would have this offering. They'd bring all these things to the, to the uh, temple. And then during the ceremony uh, at the temple to consummate this vow, the Nazarite would shave his or her head. And then they would give their hair to the, that they've just shaved off to the priest who would then burn it on the altar. And after this ritual, the Nazarite then would receive a portion of the sacrificial meal, all of that stuff that they had brought, and, and they would uh, eat that. And they, they, after that, they could then enjoy the fruit of the vine. So now, after hearing all that, it's natural to realize that ending this vow would cost the Nazarite A large sum of money. That was an expensive sacrifice, bringing two lambs, a ram, a a basket of unleavened cakes, unleavened wafer spread with oil, a grain offering, and a drink offering. This was an expensive thing. I mean, the animals alone that they're bringing could serve 100 people at a banquet. So, I mean, have you ever fed a large crowd? you You know how expensive it is to feed 100 people? You know, I mean, this is this is the same in their culture, in their uh, economy. So this was an expensive thing, and and uh, and now the Jewish people regarded Nazarites very very highly because, you know, there were some things like uh, circumcision that was something that was required, but a Nazarite vow was something that somebody did voluntarily, and so the Jewish people would see this Nazarite, uh, as they were known, and they would they would they would hold them up at a higher level and kind of put them on a pedestal because uh, they you know, they were considered so pious and so holy and, you know, that they were so devoted to God. So because of that, then the the community, the the Jewish people considered any assistance given to a Nazarite a great honor. They They would think that was a wonderful thing. And so in their mind, funding one Nazarite ritual demonstrated high regard for Jewish tradition. They thought, man, that's great. You helped the Nazarite. You helped uh, the financially supply the, all those things for the sacrifice that they needed. But you know what? Funding four, that would have been like front page news. That would have been amazing to the Jews. So, so the elders suggested that Paul sponsor these four Christian Jews as they consummated the vows. And so then, as a patron, he would go through the purification ritual with them, and he would pay for their offerings. and in this way, Paul could show his support for Jewish law without compromising his stand on grace. And the elders, and the hope was by doing this in this plan, that this gesture would not only mollify the the Jewish Christians, but it also would go a long way toward pacifying angry unbelieving Jews. And and upon presenting this to him, the the uh, the elders assured him that they were not discarding the decision of the Apostolic Council. They had no desire to impose legal requirements on Gentile converts, and as far as they were concerned they were still standing by the simple requirements that they had given in that earlier decision. And those were that they said to the Gentile believers, abstain from eating flesh, eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. They said, abstain from eating meat that had been killed in such a way that the blood had not been properly drained from it, like strangulation. And then number three, guard the morality of sex and marriage, that that was important. Now, by doing this, by submitting to this Jewish law in this way, it's important to know Paul was not compromising the principles that he taught concerning grace and law. On the contrary, Paul acted in strict accordance with his own stated policy in 1 Corinthians 9.20 because he said, To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like the one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. So by what he was doing... By submitting to this plan and, and being part of this Jewish ritual, it had nothing to do with whether he was being saved or not. It had nothing to do with his salvation. But what he was doing was he was demonstrating his love and his understanding and his compassion for the Jewish people. In fact, he loved the Jewish people so much that Paul at one point in time said, if, 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 if I could... Uh, lose out with Christ if I could lose my salvation and if I could be separated him and suffer the judgment of hell he said if if I did that if I could do that and in return the Jewish people would be saved he said I would do that in a heartbeat that's a really a powerful passion for those people and so Paul agreed to partake in the Nazarite vow and pay for the expenses of everyone involved to, to show the Jewish Christians that he was, not someone who despised the law. He was not what these rumors said he was. And and, and, you know, the thing is, and something we can learn from this is that sometimes believers must submit to authorities to avoid offending others, especially when such offense would hinder God's work. I'll give you a great example of this. I know of a number of of, uh, missionaries uh, that are serving particularly, particularly through the Live Dead movement and the Assemblies of God, Uh, missions department, and there are a number of ladies that are serving in Muslim nations. Well, you know what? When they go into those Muslim nations, do you know what they have to do when they go out in public? They have to cover their head. They have to cover their face. They have to wear some sort of hijab or something like that. Uh, and they're not doing that because they feel like they have to submit to the Muslim religion. They're doing that because they're living among Muslim people and they realize if they want to have the right, the, the, the opportunity to share the gospel with them, they can't begin by putting an offense in front of them. And they realize it has nothing to do with their salvation, but they're willing to submit to that rule in order to not build a wall but instead, to build a bridge. So this is what Paul's doing. The next day, Paul went to the temple to make it official and, and went through the purification ritual with the four men. And, and uh, very often, they would actually stay at the temple for that that whole week that they were going to be there for that ritual. And uh, and so that's what he does. He goes there with them. Now we're gonna we're gonna skip down to uh, Acts twenty one twenty seven. We won't read as long passage. But then at the after the end of the work, excuse me, after the end of the week of purification, as, that, as the end of that grew near, uh, it was almost time to consummate the vow. They were almost done with it, and some trouble broke out in Jerusalem, which led to a riot. What a shock. Everywhere Paul goes, there's either either a revival or a revival, a, a revival or a riot, and a lot of times both. And so what happened was some Jews from Asia, and we think very, very strongly, we believe very strongly they were actually from the city of Ephesus. Paul had spent a lot of time there. They see Paul in the temple with, with the other Jews that he had, these other four men and, and, that had taken this Nazarite vow. And they began to accuse Paul of taking Trophimus, who was an Ephesian Gentile, into the temple. And the reason we believe they, they were from Ephesus because they knew him. They had, uh, they, these Jews from Ephesus had seen Paul with, Tro, with Trophimus in Jerusalem and they knew that he was a Gentile. So they wouldn't know who he was unless they had seen him in Ephesus as well. And so then later in the week when they saw Paul in the temple in the, in the court of Israel, in the part where only Israeli men could go into it. Um, and he was there discharging the ritual obligations which he had undertaken. They saw him and they jumped to the conclusion. Anybody here ever known anybody that jumped to a conclusion? That ever happened to anybody? Has anybody here ever jumped to a conclusion? Uh, I have, I'll admit that. And they jumped to the conclusion. Uh, maybe they saw from a distance Paul and, and they saw some other men with him and maybe they just jumped to the conclusion at that moment and, the, and they, they jumped to the conclusion that Trophimus was still with Paul and he was in the temple and he had taken him into the place where only Jewish men could go. Now we got to understand this. Taking a Gentile past the outer court of the temple, which was the outer court was the court of the Gentiles, that was the only place they could go. Taking a Gentile past that point, even to the court of the women, uh, uh, which was the first uh, court after the court of the uh, Gentiles, that was a capital offense. Gentiles could visit the outer court of the temple. That's why it was known as the court of the Gentiles. But they could not go into into any of the inner courts on pain of death. And the Roman authorities, you know, they were normally the ones that carried out death sentences and, sentences and that sort of thing. But they were so conciliatory of Jewish religious scruples that they ratified the death sentence of this trespass. This is one area where the Jews could carry out the death sentence without consulting with the Romans. And, that, and they even let them do that. Get this, they even let them do it uh, when, when it was a Roman citizen. This is a big deal. And in order that no Gentile might accidentally enter into the forbid, forbidden area, they actually placed these notices in Greek and in Latin, and they, they fixed them to the barrier at the, at the foot of the steps leading up to the inner courts, warning them that death was a penalty for further entrance. In fact, two of these notices have been found. One was found in 1871, one was found in 1935. And this is what, what the text read. It said this, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. That's a pretty strong no trespassing sign right there. And if these Asian Jews from Ephesus, if the charge against Paul had been justified, if it was true, then he certainly would have been guilty of participating in Absolutely the most serious crime against Jewish law and one which was bound to inflame all the Jews of Jerusalem against him. So without any investigation whatsoever, these Ephesian Jews see Paul somewhere in the temple. Remember, you understand the temple was huge so, so they could see him a long way off and, and, and start to stir people up. Uh, they they began to stir up the whole crowd without any investigation. They didn't even go to check to see if Trof- Trophimus was with him. They just assumed he was there. And maybe they just, it's possible that they saw him there and they thought, this is how we can get him. And so they stirred up the crowd and they seized Paul and in a mob-like fashion began to shout their biased case against him. As I said, they had seen Paul in Jerusalem with Trophimus. And, and Paul's enemies had made these giant assumptions and decided Without checking the facts that Paul must have brought Greeks, Greeks into the temple. Now, I want to say this. False accusations are a common way the enemy t- tries to make Christians look bad. Has anybody ever been falsely accused of something? I remember, I remember a time when, uh, uh, when I was a little boy. We would uh, spend a couple of weeks every summer with my grandparents my, on my mom's side, my grandpa, my grandma. And uh, they lived in this little bitty town, less than 100 people, called Passaic, Missouri. And, I mean, there was just, I, I mean, they had one highway going through town. And the rest of it was gravel roads. And, you know, and, and, and you just have to understand, uh, it was just a different world down where, where my grandma and grandpa lived. Um, my grandpa, he had a salvage yard in his yard that nothing was ever salvaged from. You know what I'm talking about? The backyard was was uh, was always through the summer, was always grown up really high with weeds and there was all kinds of stuff back there. And you did, you couldn't see where you were walking, that sort of thing. And I remember one time I was out in the backyard with my cousin Daryl. And I, he really is. I really have a cousin Daryl. That's not Daryl and my other cousin, my cousin Daryl and my other cousin Daryl. But we were out back one time and uh, in the summer we always just went barefoot. And, uh, and we were in the backyard and all these weeds were grown up and I didn't see it, but there was a two-by-four on the ground and had a nail through it sticking up. And guess what I did? I stepped on that old rusty nail. And so, you know, we went, we went inside and, and uh, my, my grandma, you know, put, put some Epsom salt in, in some water and I began soaking my foot. And meanwhile, my grandpa, he, uh, he corners my cousin Daryl on the other side of the room. Now, you got to understand something. The people in the home that was across the gravel road from my grandpa's house, uh, they and my, my grandpa had a little bit of a running feud. And, and we could do just about anything when we were down at his house. But one thing he said was, do not go over on their property. For whatever reason, I have no idea why, my grandpa decided that I must have stepped on that nail across the street. I don't know why he couldn't look outside and say, yeah, that could have definitely happened out here. I, I don't know why, but he was so convinced of that that he had my cousin Daryl in the corner and basically he spanked him into submission to where he finally confessed, okay, we were across the street. And I remember I got, I got a spanking and I got in trouble because, for going across the street and I was falsely accused. It's a horrible feeling, isn't it? When you get falsely accused here's what we got to remember we cannot keep people from distorting and twisting the facts or assuming the worst about us we cannot stop people from making false accusations nor can we not only can we not stop them we cannot even spend all of our time trying to answer our critics because listen if you're doing anything for god you're going to have critics And if you try to answer all your critics, all you're going to be doing is answering your critics and you're going to stop doing anything for God. You can't do that. Here's what we can do. The only thing we can do is live our lives with integrity and let our true character dispel the rumors. That's what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2.12. So what he's talking about he said live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong they may see your good deeds and glorify god on the day he visits us he's saying listen people are going to make up tales about you there are going to be rumors that will start there'll be false accusations that will come your way that happens in life but he's saying live your life in such a way that other people when they hear it, will say that can't be true I know that's a a man or a woman of integrity. So anyway, let's get back to Paul. This angry angry mob that is now forming, they all start gathering and they they attack Paul. The crowd that was present in the court of Israel, they all jumped on Paul when they heard this accusation. Uh, and, and, And by the way, no one seemed to notice or even care that Paul had no Gentiles with him. I mean, they were they're grabbing him and they're accusing of this, and there's no Gentiles there. And they drag him out of the inner precincts, down the steps into the outer court, and the news quickly began to spread throughout the city, and many others hurried to the scene of action. Hey, there's something going down at the temple. We got to get down there. Not everybody, it's like the scene in in Ephesus when the the riot broke out and, and they shouted for two hours. And, and the reality was nobody even knew what the riot was about. That's sort of what was starting to happen here. And so people are start coming. And, and as the mob dragged Paul out of the temple, the, the gates to the temple were shut so that the mob wouldn't desecrate the temple by shedding blood inside there and pummeled and, and torn and screams of, of frenzy in his ears. Paul was dragged down the steps, every yard bringing a new bruise. He heard the great doors of that temple cl- uh, clang shut and he, and he heard the roar of the mob swelling louder and louder and he, he struggled to remain on his feet, but it was a losing battle and, and soon he'd be on the ground and once he was down, he was going to be torn limb from limb. Someone was twisting an arm on this side and one ear was already split and his eyes were bruised and already swelling. I mean, was he going to die without being able to say one word? With all of that going on, he heard above the uproar, the metallic clank of soldiers on the double approaching. And what what happened was Roman guards had immediately seen what was was taking place and reported the the riot to their garrison commander. And the garrison commander saw... Uh, The quickly uh, forming forming riot and he took charge of the situation personally and with the precision of long training at least 200 uh, men quickly marched straight into the center of the trouble. Now the reality is Paul's life would not have been worth a plug nickel if it hadn't been for the timely intervention of the Roman garrison. See, what, what's taking place here is northwest of the temple, actually even being connected to the temple through stairways, there is a, 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 a garrison, a fortress, called the Fortress of Antonia, actually named after Mark Antony. And it had been built by Herod the Great. And it was garrisoned by a cohort of Roman troops, probably housed at least a thousand troops there, under the command of a, a military tribune, tribune named Claudius Lysias. And this fortress was connected to the outer court of the temple by two flights of steps, and, 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 so that, so, and they built it that way so that the garrison would be able to intervene as quickly as possible in the event of, a, of, of, a, of rioting in the temple, in the courts there. And as soon as Claudius Lysias received a report of the spreading tumult, he... So he summoned a detachment of soldiers, not less than 200, because we're told uh, that that he uh, took soldiers and their centurions. So it was plural, so there were at least two centurions. A centurion was a, was a, an officer who was in charge of 100 men. So we know there were at least 200 soldiers. And as, as soon as the mob saw the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And that's because the, in the last riot, they had... They had resisted, and in the ensuing flight and panic, thousands had been trampled to death, so they realized this is not a good idea. You know, once they show up, we better quit. And the captain, this, this man, Claudius Lysias, he, he formally arrested Paul, and he ordered that Paul be handcuffed with two chains. Now The, the fact that it tells us there were two chains probably tells us that he, he was chained, one arm chained to one Roman soldier and the other arm chained to another Roman soldier. And there's no doubt he thought this man was a criminal. And he tried to find out who this man was and tried to find out what he had done. But everyone in the crowd started shouting different things all at once. Ever been in a room where you ask a question and then everybody shouts out something different at the same time and you can't hear what, you can't hear any of them. You don't know what anybody's saying. And and there is no way that he could be sure of what was being said because of all this uproar. And he had to find out the truth of, of the matter. So he told the soldiers, he said, bring him up to the fortress. And the enraged crowd began to press in so hard on the soldiers as they began to move with Paul that by the time they reached the steps leading up to the fortress, the mob grew so violent that we're told that the soldiers had to, be, had to pick up Paul, had to carry him up the stairs in order, uh, unless the crowd would pull him away. You know, it reminds me as they were coming up and shouting and shouting away with him, away with him. It it reminds me of what happened 27 years earlier when another Jerusalem mob had shouted very similar cries. In Luke 23, 18, but the whole crowd shouted away with this man, release Barabbas to us. John 19, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. And so now these this mob kept kept up the shout with Paul. Away with him. Away with him. Kill him. Kill him. So Claudius Lysias trying to size up the situation, he jumped to a conclusion himself. It seems what happened was that some Three years or so earlier, there was an Egyptian man who appeared on the scene in Jerusalem, and he was claiming to be a prophet. And he, he convinced a large group of men, he had a large band of followers, and he, and he the, convinced them that he was a prophet. He led him out to the Mount of Olives, and he told them, he said, Now wait here until my command. And he said, At my command, the walls of Jerusalem would fall flat. And then he said, "Then we'll march in, overthrow the Roman garrison, and take possession of, of, of the whole place." Well, Felix, the procurator, during that time, sent a, a body of troops against them, and he very they very quickly routed the would-be rebels. The Romans, uh, in response, had crucified hundreds of the survivors. Many of the others they sent to garrisons or to galleys, but. But when it all began going down, this Egyptian had run away and had escaped. So Claudius Lysias thought to himself, Surely this is the man who has now returned, and the Jews are venting their rage on the foreigner who had duped their sons and caused so many of them to die. Well, Paul spoke to him, and he spoke to him in Greek. And the military tribune was... Was surprised when Paul addressed him in an educated Greek voice, because he thought he was this uneducated, illiterate Egyptian. And so when he spoke in this educated Greek, and uh, uh, he was shocked. And Paul assured him. He said, "He said, 'Aren't you that Egyptian?'" And Paul said, "No, I'm no Egyptian." And Paul identified himself as a Jew, a citizen of the prestigious city of Tarsus. In fact, when he says. Uh, um, uh, of Tarsus no mean city he's actually quoting uh, a a great scholar from and so all of a sudden you know this Claudius Lysias is realizing hey this is an educated man this is not anybody that I thought it was and when he told him this uh, Paul told him this it implies that he was a kind of a noble person from a sophisticated place and and then he asked for permission to address the people and so after he received this permission he was allowed To stand up at the top of the stairs. And signaling his desire to speak, he he got the attention of the crowd. And and all of a sudden, there there was this sudden quiet that came. And Paul began to speak in Aramaic, which was the language of the people. Actually, some scholars believe he actually began speaking classic Hebrew. Uh, which there's some evidence that that there, that many people in Jerusalem did speak classic Hebrew. But either way, he began to speak in a language that, that, that caught them off guard. And, 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 and when they heard him speaking in the language of the people, they got even quieter and they began to listen. And Paul begins to tell of his heritage and upbringing. I'm a Jew, he said, born at Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in the city at the feet of Gamaliel. And as soon as they heard that, they, they realized this is a very well-educated man because everybody knew who Gamaliel was, this great teacher of the law. He said, I was educated according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as you all are this day. He's building a bridge. He's finding common ground. He's saying, listen, I appreciate that you are zealous for God. I appreciate that you are you're so zealous for the things of God. And he said, that's how I was brought up too. And he's finding this common ground. He said, I persecuted this way, talking about the Christian church. He said, I persecuted th- this way into death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brethren as I journeyed to Damascus. Now listen, it was a very rare thing for any Jewish person, any person living in Jerusalem to actually ever speak with the high priest of Israel. So the fact that Paul has consorted with him, that he has actually had a conference with him and received orders from him, and all of a sudden his credentials are going, higher and higher and higher they're saying wow this guy is not who we thought he was then paul tells of his conversion and and they listen i mean at last this man who has had a passion for the jewish people was finally at last preaching to a vast crowd of jews the opportunity had come and he was going to seize it all the pain from the mob and the and the beating was forgotten as he described his sudden experience uh, on the Damascus Road. And, and in that moment, Paul saw an opportunity to give his unanswerable argument the story of his life and his miraculous encounter with the Lord, risen Lord Jesus. And I want to read this part. By the way, this is the only, this is the first time, not the only this is the first time that Paul himself describes his conversion and how he met Christ. The previous time, Luke told the story about him. Now he's telling it about himself. So I'm going to begin reading in Acts 22, verse 6. About noon as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I ask. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because of because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. And it's interesting at this point in time, Paul doesn't even tell them that Ananias is a follower of Jesus. He's trying to. Uh, establish his Jewish credentials here. Verse 13, he stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash your sins away and, and, uh, and wash your sins away calling on his name. Now i want to pause here for a second because there are a couple of things that we can learn. Paul has this opportunity to begin to, to the, for the first time in his life to preach to this large uh, crowd of Jews. And, and we can learn a couple of things from this moment. The first thing is this. The most compelling case for Christianity is a personal testimony. He could, have, he could have gone anywhere, he could have said anything, but what did he do? The first thing he went to was this, his testimony. And that's because no one can argue with your personal experience. They will argue with you, with you about philosophy, they will argue with you about theology, they will argue with you over science, they will argue with you over religion, but they can't argue with you over your story it's like it's like the man who was born blind whom Jesus had healed and and after he was healed the, the religious leaders all they called this blind man the man who had been blind before him and began grilling him who is this that healed you and what kind of man is he was he a sinner or is he a righteous you tell us and and the man you know they they, they wanted to argue about the theology of this situation but the man's reply to all of this grilling and this questioning was simply his testimony. He said, I do not know if he is a sinner. I know one thing. He said, that's all I know. I know one thing. I was blind, but now I see. And you know what? They had no answer for that, and they sent him away. People will argue with you about... You know, well, you know, if God's real, why is suffering, you know, in the world? If God is really this, then why is this? If Can God do this? They're going to argue with you. Listen, it's, it's okay to say, listen, I don't know the answer to those questions, but here's what I know. I was this, and now I'm not. I was blind, but now I see. I was a sinner, but now I'm not. I used to be a liar, but now I speak truth. I used to be a, a drug addict, but now I've been set free that's your testimony in fact let me just tell you the a compelling testimony it's really very simple we we tend to overcomplicate things. things ever notice that you know we think we you know we have the and there's nothing wrong with it we need to have evangelism classes and teach people you know how to give answers to people when they have questions but but we think we've got to know all the answers and you know we've got to have you know our plan all out of well if they say this and i'm going to say that and that's all well and good to be prepared but but the truth is you don't need to have a master's degree in in christian apologetics or theology to be an effective witness here's what you need a compelling testimony it, it communicates three things you ready for this this is so so simple but so powerful a compelling testimony tells about your life before christ And then it tells about your encounter with Christ. How did you meet Jesus? How did you come to know Him? What happened in your life? And then tells about how your life has changed since you met Him. If you can do those three things, then you can be an effective witness for Christ. Because you're able to tell people, listen... This is what my life was like. This is what I was going through. This is how I was hurting. This is where I was broken. And then I went to church one day, or I went to a summer camp, or I, was, I met a, a man out on the street corner who was preaching. And I, and I heard about this Jesus and something drew me to him and I put my trust in him and now I'm, I'm, not, I'm not broken anymore. Now I'm, I'm not suffering anymore. Now I have peace where I had turmoil before. That's what witnessing really is. That's what your testimony really is. It's saying this is what was my life before Christ. This is how I met Jesus and this is what my life is like now. And by the way, You're responsible for presenting your testimony. You're not responsible for whether people receive it or respect it or not. And as we see in a moment, they didn't receive Paul's. Here's the second thing from this story. And I love this one. Paul's conversion reminds us us that no one is out of the Lord's reach. If there was anybody that had gone too far for salvation, it was Paul. He was killing the Christians. He was trying to to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, as we read in his testimony there, Jesus didn't say, Paul, he didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting these believers? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And if Paul can get saved, anybody can get saved. Then Paul goes on in verse 17. He said, When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. So he kind of skips over everything that happened in Damascus and all that time, and he goes to the time he spent in Jerusalem. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, and this is where everything takes a bad turn. Then the Lord said to me, and this is Paul speaking, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And the crowd listens intently to everything that he says until he says gentiles why were they upset with him what were they he's being accused of he's being accused of bring a gentile into the temple and now he says that, that jesus appeared to him and sent him to the gentiles and as soon as he said gentiles that word struck like a match in dry straw i mean think about this roman oppression had blinded the minds of this generation of jews and Gentiles in their eyes, were dogs. They called them dogs. They were nothing more than scavengers. And consequently, in their prejudice, the crowds uh, began to shout again, and they drowned out Paul's speech with shouts of, Kill him! Kill him! Away with him! He's not fit to live! Well, Claudius decided that he wasn't going to get any coherent explanation from the rioters. He decided if he was going to get to the truth, that he was going to have to get the truth out of Paul. And so he decided the only way to get that truth from Paul was through torture. And he ordered Paul to be scourged. Now think about this. I want you to realize this. By this time, Paul had already been whipped by the Jews five times. Not not like the Romans beat, but he had been whipped by five times. He had been beaten with rods by Romans three times. But this punishment by a Roman scourge was worse and often crippled or killed its victims. The scourge, uh, Latin flagellum, was a a fearful instrument of torture. It consisted of leather tongs weighted with rough pieces of metal or bone and attached to a stout wooden handle. And, And if a man did not actually die under the scourge, which frequently happened, when they were done he would have torn nerves and And damaged uh, internal organs, his livers—I mean, his uh, kidneys—would be would be severely damaged. Uh, And if he lived through it, he would likely be crippled for the rest of his life. Or some people went out of their mind during this process; it was so painful. And Paul knew this. If Paul went through this, he would probably never preach again. Fortunately, uh, this was a penalty a scourging from which Roman citizens were legally exempt. As the soldiers were tying Paul up in readiness for the the lash, he asked the centurion if it was legal to flog a Roman citizen that had not been found guilty of a crime. I find it really interesting. Paul, you know, he's a brilliant man. He could have brought this up at any point in time, couldn't he? He could have said to... Uh, Claudius Lysias, before when he when he said take him down and 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 scourge him, he could have said at that point in time he said hey wait a minute wait a minute Claudius I'm a Roman citizen. Why did he wait? Well Paul I believe you know he was a brilliant man I believe Paul waited until he had been taken down into the dungeon and and tied to the leather straps and stretched out for the whipping before announcing the status as a Roman citizen uh, be, for the sake of a legal strategy. He he brought his captors to the brink, right to the very brink of committing a serious crime in order to leverage their fear to his advantage. See, when the commander discovered how close he had come, because he told the centurion, the centurion said, oh, put that scourge down, guy. And he goes up and tells Claudius Lysias. He, he says he's a Roman citizen. It's Listen, he's already been chained. It's illegal by Roman law to even chain a Roman citizen. They've already broken the law. Now they're about ready to to scourge scourge him. And so when the commander discovered how close he had come to beating a Roman citizen and that Paul had stopped that, he, he felt grateful and probably more accommodating with Paul. So he began to talk with him and he interviewed Paul. And in this interview, he found out from Paul that Paul actually had a higher social status than he did. And you say, what do you mean? Well, because they had this conversation. You can read about it. He says, uh, "He says you're a Roman citizen? Yeah. Paul says, yeah, I'm a Roman citizen. And, and Claudius says, I paid a lot of money for this citizenship. And Paul said, I was born free. I was born a Roman citizen. See, the practice of selling citizenship had become a common form of corruption during the reign of Emperor Claudius. And a freeborn citizen was basically an aristocrat compared to someone who obtained the privilege through bribes. And the revelation of Paul's Roman citizenship gave the whole business a completely different aspect. And the commander shuddered as he realized how near he had come to perpetuating a perpe a, a seri- not perpetuating, but perpetrating a serious illegality. And from that, now he still had to get some answers. And so, he, what we're gonna we're gonna look at next week. Uh, he he called. He had the privilege of calling the Sanhedrin into uh, into a meeting at any time he wanted to. So he had to get to the bottom of this. So, but but he unchained Paul, but he kept him in the fortress for Paul's protection. And we're gonna get to next week uh, about that. But I want to talk about this fact that that Paul is now being kept as a prisoner. Because I don't want to contrast that with Peter. When Peter, you remember earlier in the book of Acts, when Peter was imprisoned and sentenced to die, die, what happened? Anybody remember? An angel came and delivered Peter. He set him free from prison. Paul is in prison. He receives no such visitor. And we see it throughout this whole journey to Rome. He receives no such such visitor. He is kept as a prisoner. He he is not free from this point on until he gets to Rome. And there was a point in time which, uh, you know, listen, I don't care who you are, whether you're an apostle, you know, who had this Damascus Road experience. When you're in prison that long and you go through these things uh, that, that deeply, it works on you, doesn't it? When you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death for a long time, you know, that's a hard thing. And there's a point in time where where Paul had a vision and the Lord told him, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. He was thinking, I'm going to die here in Jerusalem. I'm never going to make it to Rome. And, And he says to Paul, listen... Take courage. I'm in control. Even though you're in this prison, I'm in control. And in the same way that you testified here, I'm going to get you to Rome and you're going to tell the the people in Rome about me. But how, how was he doing it in Jerusalem? He was doing it as a prisoner. And that meant he was not going to be released from prison. It actually kind of reminds me of John the Baptist. At one point in time when John the Baptist was being held as a prisoner, right before he was killed, he sent some of his followers to Jesus because he had, remember, he had proclaimed, he had been the one to, to uh, prepare the way and he had, he had pointed to Jesus and said, behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. He, and he proclaimed that Jesus and believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God sent to redeem the world. But while he's in prison, you know, I, I, I think he just got a little bit uh, discouraged, he began to wonder: Is this really real? Is this really true? And we're and we're told that he sent some of his followers to Jesus and asked him the question. They said, "Jesus, are you?" John wants to know: Are you really Him? Are you really the one that was prophesied would come? And Jesus quotes Scripture to to them and says, "Tell John what you've seen." And he goes and he quotes this passage of Scripture. Uh, from the Old Testament that says, talks about how, uh, tell him that the, the blind are, see, that the lame walk, and, and the prisoners are set free, the captors are set free. And he goes through this whole list. But you know, until you begin to compare what Jesus said to what the Old Testament said, you don't realize something. Because included in the Old Testament... Uh, he, he, Jesus quoted he says the blind see the the lame walk and he goes through these things but in the old testament it says at the end of that it says and captives are set free but when Jesus quoted it he said you go tell him this he left off the part about captives being set free and he said tell John not to stumble because of me you know what he was saying he was saying you call, basically the message to John was John you're going to die in prison, but don't give up faith in me. That's where Peter was. And you know something? We, we have to learn to accept God's plan for our life. It's been easier for Paul to say, how come, how come Peter gets an angel and I don't? How come he gets delivered and I'm still in prison? You know, we've got to learn to accept God's plan for our life. And, and, you know, He may bless others in, other, in ways that we wish that we would see blessed in our lives. Ever, ever happen to you? You know, and that's a, that's a real struggle. We, we, we actually do much better at weeping with those who mourn than we do with, uh, with uh, rejoicing with those who are, who are doing well. You know, when, when, we, when somebody loses something, we, do, we typically do a lot better job of mourning with them, but when somebody, you know, when they get a big promotion, promotion and they get a great, great big new house, you know, so many times instead of saying, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, I'm so happy for you, we're sitting back saying, Why can't I have all those things? He may deliver others from things that we wish we could be delivered from. He may heal someone else. And you don't receive the same kind of healing. It makes me think of Catherine Kuhlman. You know, a lot of different ideas, and different things, thoughts about her, but this I know, God used her in a healing ministry and there were many, many people who were miraculously healed through her ministry and yet she herself was not healed. You know what, we have to take Heart the words of Jesus when he responded to Peter because uh, uh, well let me just read it from John twenty one Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them that's John he was talking about John he's this is the one who had leaned back it says against Jesus at the supper and said Lord who is it uh, who is going to betray you in verse twenty one of John twenty one he says when Peter saw him he asked Lord what about him now this is on the heels of Jesus telling Peter, he's saying, listen, you're going to be led by, to places you don't want to go. and You're going to be stretched out. He's telling him, you're going to die, Peter. You're going to suffer for following me. And Peter's like, okay, well, I hear that. But what about him? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. He's saying, Peter what i have planned for john is none of your business it changed it has nothing to do with my plan for you and we you know we need to get our eyes off off, off of other people and keep them on jesus because i can tell you this the comparison game whether you're comparison, comparing your ministry to somebody else's or your life to somebody else's or your your finances with somebody else's, or your walk with the Lord with somebody else's, I can tell you this. The comparison game only leads to two destinations. You know what? You want to know what they are? Those two destinations are, number one, it's going to be either pride or it's going to be despair. Because when I'm comparing myself with you, if I feel like, man, I've got a lot more going on than they do, I'm doing a lot better than them. My walk with Jesus is so much better Look at my house compared to their house. Boy, I can sure have a lot lot nicer car than they do. Then what's going to happen if if I look at it that way, then I'm going to start walking in pride, aren't I? But if I look at you and I begin to think, oh man, you know, they've got everything and I've got nothing And we start comparing ourselves and then we start saying, why even try? Why should I bother? They've got everything. They're blessed with everything and I don't get anything out of this life. It either leads you to pride or it leads you to despair. And we've got to learn, listen, don't worry about what blessings other people are receiving. Don't worry about what other people have. Don't worry about about other people's ministry. Don't worry about other people's calling. Don't worry about what other people are doing. Worry about one thing and one thing alone. Worry about whether or not you are fulfilling God's plan for you. Makes me think of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Boy, I want to just preach on that, but I don't have time. There's so much already there. But this, listen to what it says. And let us run with perseverance. So we know it's not a sprint. It's a a marathon. We're on with perseverance. And here's the phrase. The race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen, run your race. You can't run my race. You can't run the person sitting next to you, their race. Run your race, and don't get distracted if another person's race is different than yours. If the course of their life leads through pastures with flowers and rose petals and yours leads through brambles and thickets don't look at it and say why why can't i do there just understand god has called you to this listen if god has great plans for your life he's going to lead you through great difficulties because that's the process whereby he develops your character and your character had better match your ministry or your ministry will crumble. So keep your eyes on Jesus. Follow him wherever he leads you. And trust him no matter what happens. That's running the race. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you that you have a a path marked out for me.